this okay? Uh, so our passage today comes from Ephesians 4. Um, Ephesians, if, if you are new to the Christian faith or you just want a refresher in Christian doctrine, Ephesians is probably the best book to start. It's brief, which who doesn't like that? It's concise. It's logical. Um, it's neatly divided into two parts. The first part, chapters 1 through 3, is really about what God has done, how God has showered his gifts on sinners. And then the second part is how that's applied, how that gets fleshed out in church life, in family life, in our vocations. Um, and so our text today is really a vision for the church, and it's right at chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 16. So I'll be going over verses 1 through 6, Barry 7 through 13, and Ken, verses 14 through 16. Uh, what we see in this passage is that God establishes us in a new society, a new family, the body of Christ. And yet this body needs to be maintained and built up by our love for one another. Let's go ahead and read the word of the Lord. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you've been called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves of every wind of doctrine, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ and from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you will bless this word. Um, you say that your word goes out. It will not come back void. And so prepare our hearts, Lord, to receive your message. In Christ's name, amen. The year was 1987. Soviet and U.S. relations were tense, but beginning to thaw a little bit. Uh, the Soviet Union was actually starting to embrace some new reforms and openness and liberty, but there was still this one physical mark that stood, a symbol of the Iron Curtain between the Eastern Bloc and Western Europe, the Berlin Wall. President Reagan, against the will of his own advisors, stood before that wall 30 years ago, 
and said in one of the most famous speeches, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Forgive my reenactment, but 30 years later, we still feel the power of those words. And Paul, in large measure, wrote this letter discussing a wall, a wall of separation between Jewish identity and Gentile identity. Why is there a wall here? Well, think of this, that for 300 years, Gentile nations have ruled the land of Israel. Israel has been under their thumb. And moreover, think of the rich Jewish heritage that these people had. They were redeemed from the land of Egypt. God cast judgment on their enemies. God gave them these laws that distinguished them from the world. These laws like circumcision, Sabbath laws, dietary laws. And some of them come to embrace Jesus as the true Messiah. Some of them see him as the prophet, but they still can't fathom in their minds how his one sacrifice was enough to eliminate this wall of separation. So they're asking, what do we do with the Gentiles? What do we do with the pork-eating Gentiles, our enemies, really? And the Gentiles also are tempted to have this inferiority complex. Do we, do we need to become Jewish first? And Paul here, he's addressing this. He's, he says in verse 4 through 6, when he, when he goes through the ones, right? One body, one hope, one spirit. Each time he says one, it's like a battering ram hitting that wall. Why? Because our unity with each other is actually grounded in the eternal union of God himself. God establishes us in a new family, the body of Christ. Let's look at verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. The same Holy Spirit poured out on both Jew and Gentile. Yes, we're all individually loved by God. And God has worked in us individually by his Holy Spirit to show us our sin and to bring us to faith in Christ. And yet, we are bigger. We are a part of something much grander than ourselves. We're not to be little Christians living in our own little worlds. And, and Paul is showing this, that the same spirit who poured out on Jew is the same spirit who poured out and gave the same gifts to the Gentile. All the apostles were astonished at this at the time. Uh, God gives us a shared hope, a shared vision that one day we will stand and sit at a table with our Lord Christ and we'll worship him together from every tribe, nation, and tongue. We'll celebrate Jesus together. And if this applies to Jew and Gentile, then it also applies to you and me. God establishes our unity. Let's look at verse 5. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. We as a people believe in the same Lord Jesus Christ. And do you know why, when we recite the Apostles' Creed, why, he, why we say suffered under Pontius Pilate? It's kind of an obscure detail about Pontius Pilate. Because it affirms that Jesus Christ is a real person who was born in a real place, a dusty corner called Bethlehem. And now we have redemption through him. He's alive today. Why under Pontius Pilate, some obscure Roman governor? He's not, he's not a philosophy. He's not a worldview. He's not a movement. He's a person. And he's the king of kings 
over all the kings on earth, whether they acknowledge him or not. We, as a people, say that this is our king, and he has given us this royal seal, our baptism. Now, what does this mean? Is, it, is our baptism simply our commitment to Christ? It's, it's much more than that. It's actually a symbol of his commitment to us, that just as water washes the grime and the dirt from your daily life, so our baptism is a sign that the Holy Spirit has washed you of your sin, has been, has been poured out on you by the blood of Christ. And so embrace your baptism and also embrace the baptism of others. How can we be enemies with those who are under the same lordship of Christ? How can we be enemies with those who trust in him and who have been given this royal seal of approval? God establishes our unity. And this is the last blow, the last blow of the battering ram that tears down this wall. Verse 6, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Our God is not only our shared King and Savior, but our Father. He has taken you, an orphan, and has made you a son or daughter. And so think of the people, look around you, the ones you sit next to, your spouse, your child, uh, your snoring husband. This is royalty, a prince or princess. Of course, this means you're not the only child of the king. These are your brothers and sisters. Um, we are adopted by the same father. We are together. And so if, if, when you hear these words, there's part of you that just wants to rejoice and, that's, and celebrate. And you're like, this is awesome. We're, we're part of the, the winning team. And, th and that's right. And we should. We should do that every day. But then there's another part of us that gives us a little bit of pause. It makes us squirm in our seats. And I, I can think of two reasons here. One, the historical practice of the church has been pretty lousy in embracing this view. In our very own state of Virginia, some early settlers would actually refuse baptism to Native Americans and Africans. They, they believed they were incapable of true conversion, of true faith in Christ. And then later on, more recently, some of our fathers who so valiantly defended the, the authority of the scriptures and our gospel commitments also defended a southern way of life that included racism and segregation. And, and this is documented by our church historians. And then the second reason, privately, we build up our own walls. We draw lines in the sand that are either private opinions or they're just flat out unbiblical. We sin against others by excluding them unjustly, dismissing them, ignoring them, fearing them. What private opinions are you holding your brothers and sisters to? What walls have you built according to race, occupation, gender, looks, education? How do, how do we move forward here? Paul is telling us that our unity is established by God. 
but we must maintain it. Let's look at verse 3. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Verse 1. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. What, what does that mean but to repent of your pride and to embrace Jesus Christ and all his work and his vision every day? One of the more remarkable things I've seen was a few years ago, I got to go to an MTW conference, and uh, there was two men. One was a Palestinian Christian, and the other was a Messianic Jew from Israel. And these, these two men are, are worlds apart, right, socially, politically, and even, even some theological differences here. But these men were holding hands on stage and saying, we are brothers in Christ, we are united, we are one. And when you see that, you just want to dance. It was, it was wonderful, right? And this is, this is the kind of calling that we're called to. So what's, what's this kind of love? The soil of this love, the ground of this love is humility. We really have, have nothing to boast about. Every good we have comes from God. And moreover, you and I are surrounded by a royal court God's people, his prince and princesses. So what does this mean? How is this expressed? It's expressed in gentleness, patience, acceptance. Build up your affection for one another. Be careful not to slander or gossip each other. Speak with kind words. Be patient. Don't be so easily aggravated by the sins of others. God is calling us to mourn our own sin and to be offended by our own sin more than we're offended by the sins of others. Receive each other with gratitude. There is one Spirit, one Lord, one Father. God established our unity. Let us, therefore, eagerly maintain it. Thank you, Alex. Is that loud enough, guys? Hello? I'm going to make the big switch. There you go. How's that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, Alex, in, in what he just talked about, pointed out uh, that in those first six verses in Ephesians that God is creating a new redeemed family for himself and that within this family he is structuring it in such a way that there's unity but that unity becomes uh, is, is a result of how we relate to one another humbly and with love. Uh, so we move on to the next section in, uh, in this passage of Ephesians verses 7 through 13 and we're going to find out that Paul moves from that great exhortation in the first six verses towards a more individual focus. If you look at uh, verse, uh, excuse me, but before I do that, I just want to remind you that um, this redeemed family that he's putting together, there's one characteristic of, of it, and that is that this unity and oneness that's in this family does not indicate uniformity. Okay, so within the family of God, Unity and oneness is not an indication of uniformity. And we're going to find that how that uh, works out within these next verses we go to. <clears throat> so if we look at verse 7, the next verse, 
we read, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. One of the things that we need to understand is what it means by that term, the measure of Christ's gift. And I think, do I have Colossians up there now? Is that up on the... Good. Um, one of the things we're going to look at it, at what this full measure of Christ's gifts means is by looking at this verse in, in Colossians. And it's the NIV version, by the way. <clears throat> the first two verses are, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. I think those two verses give you a great overall view of what it means to have been given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. It's, it's vast, it's, un, it's undeserved, because there's no question about it. This grace was given to us because while we were still sinners, Christ died for us at just the right time. Nothing that we deserve, nothing that we had earned, uh, this, this grace flows to us as an undeserved gift from God according to his plan and purpose. Um, and that, by the way, I, I don't know if you noticed the uh, title of our sermon was Identity Crisis. There should be no identity crisis for believers. We are identified with Christ wholly and completely. We are identified with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. And that's what we're kind of fleshing out in these verses we're going through. Okay, so... Having sorted all that out in verse 7, we move to verse 8. And here's an interesting verse. It says, Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. <clears throat> We're going to focus on the first part of that and come back to the and gave gifts to men a little bit later. But I don't know about you, but I've often wondered, what does it mean to ascend on high? That he ascended on high and uh, led a host of captives. Uh, in that the last verse in that Colossians passage, you'll read that it says, Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Has uh, everybody in here seen Ben-Hur at least once? Has anybody not seen it? I recommend that you, you need to go watch it. And the Charlton Heston version, not the new one. Okay, not the new one. Um, but part of that movie, after uh, Charlton Heston has rescued the council and they return triumphantly to, to, triumphantly to Rome because they had won the great sea battle, there's this huge parade through the uh, city of Rome to the forum where this council is going to receive the glory and honor that is his because he has defeated a, a, a mighty foe and won the victory for Rome. Um, that's almost a great example of what we're talking about here. Jesus' victory over the enemy on the cross was a public spectacle in the heavenly realms. It was not a hidden victory. It was not something that was kind of pushed under the rug. But Satan was exposed as the one who had been defeated by the cross. And that defeat meant that for eternity, forever, that he has no right privilege to this redeemed family that God is creating for himself. <clears throat> so this is really a great thing to think about. Uh, how massive and great was this victory. Um, before we move on to the last part of verse 8, which has to do with giving gifts to men, uh, Paul kind of, I wouldn't say he makes an aside, but he enters in a description of who this person was that accomplished this on our behalf. <clears throat> 
Excuse me. And these, in verse 9 and 10, it says, In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also had descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. I'm sure that everyone's familiar with the verse in Isaiah 9-2 that says, The people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them this light has shone. Jesus Christ is that light. He is the light that came from heaven and invaded the dark realms of this earth. He is the light who will eventually, uh, in that day that's described in Revelation, have completely consumed all darkness. There will no longer be any darkness. It will be all light. But he is that light. He is the one who descended. He is, as it says in Isaiah, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. That's the one who descended from heaven into, the, into our earthly realm so that he could be the one who ascends in victory. Okay, then that leads us to the last part of verse 8 where it says, after he had made that great victory march into heaven, he gave gifts, gifts to men. So what does that mean? How does that fleshed out? Um, one of the things is that well, let me read from, uh, from John, first of all. Jesus said in, jo in the book of John, in chapter 14, verse 18, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. And then in, in the book of Acts, Peter testifies to the fact that Jesus was exalted to the right hand of God. He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. So in verse 11, it says that our head, Jesus Christ, according to his preferences and his uh, purposes, has given us apostles, he's given us prophets, he's given us evangelists, and he's given us pastors and teachers. And that is not all the gifts that are given. If you look in other parts of scripture, there are other gifts that are given by our Savior to us uh, in Romans and in some of the other parts where we have the gifts of hospitality, administration, the gift of mercy, all of those things that are enumerated. But these gifts are given to us by the one who ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God and who receives from the Father every means of grace that we need and pours it into us through this ministry of the Holy Spirit. Um, and so that's verse 11, the gifts being given. But we move to verse 12, uh, and this is begins to sit, we begin to understand what the desired outcome uh, that God has for giving these gifts. And it's not, by the way, to create a special class within the body of Christ that does all the work. And it's not to have a professional minister pastor. But what this verse says is, these gifts are given to build the people up for works of service. To build you and I as individual believers within the body of Christ, to equip us, to make us uh, um, able to do what's required of us according to the gifts that we're given. Uh, I don't know if you ever venture to within our bulletin on the uh, let's see page uh, page five. <clears throat> we have the Redeemer uh, distinctives that are listed there. And one of the distinctives is that the Redeemer Presbyterian is committed to being a training center that views its staff as equippers and its members as ministers. So it kind of turns things on the head from what we're normally used to. 
we are the one who minister. The, 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 the gifts that are given to the pastors and teachers are, are given to equip us with the works of ministry. So that's what, uh, what we see in verse 12. Uh, what is the intended uh, reason for the giving of these gifts? Now, in verse 13, we circle back uh, to where we started because the ultimate goal for all of this is that we would be mature and be spiritually united and be built up into our head who is Christ. Um, and this maturity has in it a sense of, uh, of, of the ability to accomplish the goal that's set for us. Uh, I don't, does anybody here ever watch the NFL football during the, anybody, okay. I'm sure that you agree with me that the New England Patriots are great, right? Ah, I got a thumbs down over there, okay. Um, but the one thing about the New England Patriots that you can say is they have a particular way of doing things. And I'm going to try and summarize it very quickly. This is what they say. This is what they preach. This is how they operate. First of all, everyone is told to do your job. That's, that's your responsibility. Do your job. And then don't worry about how someone else is doing their job. Do yours. And then lastly, don't seek glory and honor for yourself, but everything you do is, is oriented to the team's goal, and that goal is winning. And I was thinking, how could that apply to the family of believers here at Redeemer Presbyterian? Well, I'm going to make a, a few changes to, that, to those statements. First of all, we should use our gifts. That's our, that's our job, to use our gifts. And second, we should not worry about how someone else is using their gifts. We should just use ours. And then thirdly, um, don't seek to use your gifts to bring glory and honor to yourself, but seek to use your gifts to fulfill your responsibility to the body of Christ, to bring glory and honor to Jesus in how we live out our lives within the body of Christ. <clears throat> Excuse me. With, um, with what Alex talked about in the beginning how we participate in the building up of the family, the redeemed family of God, and how we do this with love and humility as we are united. So here we have this, uh, this dichotomy, diversity in gifts, but united in oneness and in the application of gifts to build up the body of Christ. So the, the question for all of us, for you, for me, for everyone here at the family of Redeemer, are we gonna stay up in the grandstands? That's the question. Are we called to stay in the grandstands? Or is it time for us to move down, to get on the bench, to be trained up, and to be equipped by God through the, through the ministry of, the, of Redeemer Presbyterian, and then be ready to get in the game? Because the game, that's what it's all about, folks. The, the game of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ and moving forward in the family of God. Ken? So... So I've got verses uh, 14, 15, and 16 in our passage. And I'm going to look at each of those. Um, and then have a couple of observations more generally. <clears throat> Question, did Jesus really have an identical twin? Um, was he really married to Mary Magdalene? Um, were there really some Gospels that were written that should be in our Bible, but that were destroyed and uh, partially lost? 
was Judas Iscariot really the hero, the only one of the disciples who actually knew Jesus and was following his secret orders when he betrayed him? What? Okay. So, so these are... Um, these are conclusions that uh, the Christian Gnostics uh, came to back in the early church. Uh, and they were teaching some of these things. Um, and the foundations of these heretical teachings were laid even during Paul's time through the work and the writings and the philosophies of some of these uh, Gnostic philosophers. What about today? Is true faith really something that's going to lead in my life to perfect health um, and, and wealth? Was Jesus rich? Does God really prefer to help those who help themselves? 88 reasons that Christ will return in 1988. That was a book. Uh, do you guys know about that book? No, well, I, I, was, I was there. I saw it. It was a hot Christmas item in 1997. No, 87. Hot Christmas item. The following year, it was discounted. <laughs> Deep discount, yes. What about in my own life? I am frequently just desperate for this Christian life to be about Jesus making things go well for me. Right? So that I can live a life of ease. That's what I want. Am I going to be ready to listen to somebody who's going to tell me that that's what it's all about? You bet. Why is it so hard for us to stay focused on the gospel of grace? Why, throughout the history of the Christian church, are we unable to stay on the rails? I think our passage, and specifically verse 14, gives us some of the answer to this. <clears throat> the Apostle Paul, earlier in the passage, and, and Barry, pretty much the same thing, um, sa <laughs> says that he gave gifts, right? And the gifts that he gave were for the purpose of equipping us, the saints, to do work of ministry, right? For building us up, for maturity, Right, And then he says in verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. It's immaturity. Simple as that. It is childishness. It is the habits and the desires of my flesh warring against the desires of the spirit. Right? Galatians 5 tells us about that same author. It's immaturity. And this passage is telling us what the answer is to that immaturity. Right, The immaturity is what makes us susceptible to those schemes. Right, And this passage, a good part of it, is about growing in maturity. It's about unity, right? diversity, and maturity. But diversity within unity leading to maturity, so that we can be protected from those evil schemes. Those evil schemes in history, those evil schemes in our current time, and those evil schemes of our own heart. The answer is in here. Now you might think immaturity 
that's a problem, but it's not, you know, it's not the end of the world. It's not some huge crisis. A lot of people are immature. Some people grow at different rates than others and so on and so forth. But I would beg to differ because this passage also tells us that there's some things at stake, right? The work of the ministry. What is this thing all about? So if it's okay with you, I'd like to turn, and I'm sorry I didn't turn this in to be put up on the screen, to 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 21. The reason I didn't turn it in to put it up on the screen is because at the deadline I didn't know that I was going to read it. So here we go. 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is what's at stake. The ministry of reconciliation the gospel. Listen, guys, I, if you're here today and you're not sure what this Christian thing is about and the message here has been sort of um, blurred, there's static that comes from our hypocrisy and failures as a church, I want you to know that this is what it's about. It's about Jesus who knew no sin, who took our sins and adopted them as his own. And he took those sins to the cross and he died for us so that we, in turn, could have his righteousness, could know God, so that our sins would no longer be between us and our maker, so that we could be free and redeemed. That's the gospel. We need to keep the main thing, the main thing. And this passage, our, our text, is teaching us how to keep the main thing, the main thing. The antidote to being tossed to and fro, the antidote to being subject to deceitful schemes is this, verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Speaking the truth in love. That truth, I read a commentator who said that this is the exact opposite of the deceitful schemes. This is speaking truly. This is staying on track. This is speaking the gospel this is bringing the hard and real and glorious and gracious truth of the gospel to everyone, ourselves, each other, our community. And it says, speak that truth. There's the answer to staying on track. And speak it in love. 
By the way, I know the gospel is love, but Paul feels the need, obviously, in writing that, to say, speak the truth in love. And so I just want to remind us, although I know we know this, that that love is the, the 1 Corinthians 13 love, isn't it? It's speaking the truth, which is hard, right? I mean, come on, the first step in coming to know Jesus is realizing that we're in crisis, that we don't get it, that we can't do it, that we're full to the brim with our own sins, and that we're desperate, right? That's the first step. And that's part of the truth that we need to be speaking, but we need to speak it in love. So what does that look like? Well, simply it looks like being patient and kind. It looks like speaking without envy or boasting, not arrogant or rude, not insisting on our own way, not irritable or resentful, not rejoicing in wrongdoing, but rejoicing in the truth, bearing all things, believing all things, hoping all things, enduring all things. That's the character of God. And that's intertwined in the gospel, isn't it? So that hard truth surrounded and intertwined and infused with love, that's speaking the truth in love. It's the gospel. All right, now, for the sake of time, let me do this. Let me make an observation about the last verse in our passage. So, not being tossed to and fro, right? Um... Speaking the truth in love. Okay. From whom the whole body joined, growing into Christ. From whom the whole body joined and held together with every joint. Okay, body, joint. Get it, right? Body, the whole, joint, apart. With which is it equipped? When each part is working properly, makes what? The body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Here's the thing about this passage, and this last verse is a refrain of the whole thing, I think. It's, a, it's like an echo, a recap of the whole thing. And that is, the passage is about unity. But it's talking to individuals, right? It's talking about diversity. It's saying unity, it's a crucial need, but it's saying God gave a diversity of gifts. Not everyone is the same, and therefore we have to bear we, with each other in love, right? It starts off talking to me as an individual. It means I have to put up with you, right? And you have to deal with me when we don't agree and when we're different from each other and when we have different gifts and when we have different perspectives, right? And when we look different and act different because there are things that make us one body, right? It's the gospel. It's the one hope. It's the truth that we're called to speak in love. And so he's talking to us as individuals who are different from each other. And this call to unity actually requires that we be that way, different from each other, right? Diverse in our gifts and our callings and our backgrounds and our perspectives and in the things that we bring to the table. In other words, unity is a requirement, but within it is the requirement that we be individuals all standing before God, trembling, you know, with our own salvation, receiving his gifts, and speaking the truth to each other in love. You go back to the beginning of the passage, and it says, bear with one another, humility, that's individual, eager to maintain unity, right? There's the body. There's one body, 
There's one Lord, one hope. Okay, there's unity. Christ gave gifts, but he gave gifts. There's individuals, right? The gifts are to equip us for the work of the ministry. It's the gospel. That's the truth. To grow up and become mature, to not be tossed to and fro. There's individuals. But speaking the truth in love so that we can grow into the head Christ from whom the whole body, see, there's unity. Unity, diversity, unity, diversity, unity. All throughout the passage, and it's summed up at the end. Look, my hand, my arm, I'm sorry, this is a gruesome image, but if I chopped it off, right, and threw it down there, it would bleed, and it would begin to rot, and it would die. My hand grows, and it goes the same direction as I do as long as it's connected, as long as it's attached, right? And this is the, sorry, this is, this is the picture that Paul is painting. We are a body and we have parts and the parts are different, but they go together. And if you separate them from each other, they die. That's us. That's the church. That's Redeemer. So growing in maturity in the Lord is an individual thing, but it requires community. And even though the passage is about unity, it speaks to us as individuals. Finally, do this. Take out your bulletin again. And real quick, look at page five. Barry referred you to this earlier. I know you see some things there. You see vision, mission, values, right? Every organization that has a board has a vision, mission, and values, right? Sometimes they're meaningful and sometimes they're not. In this case, they are. I would encourage you to look at that. But we have something extra. We have this thing called distinctives. Look at that. Home Mission Training Center. Redeemer is to be a home for believers to make mature and equipped followers of Christ. To be a mission, there's the calling, the gospel, the work of the ministry, and a training center to equip individuals to carry out the mission. Our distinctives are in this passage, aren't they? We are together at home at Redeemer, but we're about the business of equipping each other for the work of the ministry, which is our mission. And that in turn causes us to grow in maturity and in unity, and then we start over again. That's who we are. No identity crisis. Here it is. I love you guys. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for my brother Alex and my brother Barry. Thank you for providing to us gifts that you don't leave us on our own to do the things that you've called us to, but that you've filled us with your spirit. Help us to keep the main thing the main thing. Lord, your gospel, your love. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.